Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 13 of Say Who, Say Pod, our podcast about University of Washington football. I'm Christian Capel. He's Danny O'Neill. And uh, if I had a, a breaking bulletin sound effect, I'd, I'd play it. Danny tells me he's got some he's got some info uh, he wants to share on <laughs> on realignment. Breaking no, that's, news. That's going to be that's going to be very much overselling. Break, huh? Breaking news. I'm told. Know. Um, it should it should completely change the direction, change the landscape of college football. I think was the way he put. No, I'm I'm kidding. Uh, we are we're two weeks. I, I we did we didn't quite fulfill our two week promise, Danny, and that's yeah. that's probably on me. But I think we're yeah. in we're we're inside three weeks from the last one, right? Yes, we are. It was uh, July. What was it? July thirty, J- June thirtieth that the that the news came down that the, the the UCLA and USC were bolting, and I think we did the following week. Um. It turns out the governor of California is mad. Oh, he's not happy. He's really mad. Mad. I, I love the quote where he's like, "I read about it. I read about it." <laughs> I liked, and I I didn't watch the video, so maybe this, maybe he didn't. It wasn't quite as uh, as ruthless the way he put it. But I, I like. He's like, "Yeah, I mean, no big deal. I'm I'm the governor of California. It's it's fine." <laughs> <laughs> so they had a meeting. I talked to Mike Baumgartner uh, earlier this week. Oh, yeah. That, that was after John Canzano had, had uh, mentioned him in one of his newsletters. And I'd known of Mike and knew that he taught a class with Leach. What is it? Insurgent Warfare there at Wazoo. And is, has done a lot of different work regarding higher education in the state. He's a former state senator. Right now he's the treasurer of Spokane. But, so we talked for a while. And it was really interesting to get his perspective because – I come at this strictly from sort of a college football fan, not even a college football reporter. Like, I don't talk to any of the people that make – like, I follow the sport avidly. I'm a big Husky fan, and, and I have a very strong opinion about what I think college football should be. There's a, a po- political element to this because these are, in UCLA's case, it's a, it's a, it's a public university. It's a UC. And politicians have pretty much been completely cut out of this process of UCLA and USC deciding to go. And Mike was saying that his first reaction was, okay, this got released on the eve of a long weekend, a holiday weekend, and they're trying to slide this through. And it's pretty clear it's because they did it behind the back of elected officials in in California. And I don't know if that means, and it doesn't sound like the bell can be unrung, like the, I don't think the UCs are, are going to, to stop UCLA from making this move. But UCLA is in a fairly significant amount of trouble. And I think at the very least, they're going to have to break Cal off a significant piece of money, which is hilarious. That would be that would be kind of amazing if they wound up having to prop up Cal. Because Mike's point is like those two schools have been tied together, mm-hmm. right? And they're part of the same. They're part of the same. The the board of regents is for the UC system. It's not. It's not for the individual campuses. And UCLA going hurts Cal. Cal's going to make less money because UCLA is gone. Cal's got bonds. It's got to pay back for the construction of its football oh, yeah. stadium. So uh, someone who's a, a board of region will be like, okay, so this. This school over here did something to help itself while screwing the other school we're also responsible for. And so, I don't know, Mike Mike le- labeled it as like a 30% chance that the whole thing gets kiboshed because Newsom's so mad. Newsom doesn't he thinks it's that high. Yeah, that was, that was his estimate yesterday, 30% chance. Newsom can't do it 
like in in terms of his he doesn't have the authority to do it but look it's that that's firmly in the political realm right now in in california and and i did in the time that we've talked i've pretty much completely changed my opinion about what washington should do wow from 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 what to what i i was i was okay now that the pac-12 is going to disintegrate i want washington to go to the big 10 if they can with oregon i no longer want that i don't care really what oregon does i want to stay with washington state no matter what and i want to stay with as many of the pac-10 teams that are left as possible while acknowledging that i don't really give a crap about colorado and utah but of the actual eight true, like not the colonies, I call them the Pac-12 colonies, Colorado and Utah, yeah. of the, the eight actual Pac-10 schools that are still left, I want to stay with them, as many of them as possible going forward. I knew you'd go old school. I knew you'd land old school. I, I respect it. I, I, w- I want to see that happen. Um, I, th- I mean, I think it would, you know, continues to be, illogical to advocate for anything that would leave them without access to the college football playoff. Um, but I, yeah, like in a perfect world, I don't want to see the West coast schools splinter either. Do you, do you have, I mean, I don't know. Do you, do you see a way where that could, that could come to pass where, you know, Washington fans who want them to be competitive at the highest level are, are also satisfied? Well, that's kind of the, they're not going to make as much money. Yeah. And you're not, you're not going to make as much money as the big tent. But I'm not convinced that that's the best thing for Washington either. Like, what do you think is going to happen to UCLA's football program when they go into the Big Ten? They're going to go five and seven a bunch. Aren't they? I mean, right, like, they're not for all of the talk. And by the way, USC's past 30 years, if you take out what Pete Carroll did, isn't all that impressive either. I, I'm not sure. It looks like USC has it going with Lincoln Riley, and I think they got the right coach, and they'll be good. But, yeah, I'd. I don't think this is going to help UCLA in the long term. It might get them out of their budget deficit, but I don't see it helping their football program in in any in any shape. So, will Washington be able to compete? I don't think it's going to make them less likely to win a national championship. I guess that's what I'd say. I don't think they're going to be less likely to get into the college football playoff or win the college football playoff by not going to the Big Ten. Because I think if you do that, you run the chance of becoming the cannon fodder in the middle. Pac-12 Media Day is next week. I'm very curious to hear how George Klyovkov answers questions about, hey, um, do you wish you had just approved that 12-team format that guaranteed bids for the six highest-ranked conference champions now? Because that's that would have at least been a stopgap and like bought them some time. That you know, okay, we've got an agreement in place that it doesn't matter what the Big Ten does. The, you know, we could be left with two or three schools. The as long as the Pac-12 has a school that is a conference champion that's one of the six highest-ranked conference champions in college football, you're going to the playoff. And that that I, it didn't make sense to me at the time, Danny, that they they opposed that, Yeah, that the Pac-12 was was opposing that. It, it kind of didn't make sense to me at the time that Greg Sankey just seemed cool with it because he's kind of playing hardball now and is saying, you know, I don't – we're the SEC. What do we care about automatic qualifiers? We're always going to have, you know – probably two teams in in any playoff they get two teams now now when it's only four teams so um that was like i think the the strongest lifeline that the sec was ever going to permit to the pac-12 and they said they said no that that wasn't good enough it wasn't thought through enough um so that 
I think not having a plan in place for the playoff going forward that guarantees access to, to the playoff for a conference champion. And it wasn't as if it wasn't quite as clean. The proposal wasn't quite as simple as when the Pac-12 go to the playoff, but it's really hard to imagine the Pac-12 champion not being one of the six highest ranked conference champions in college football. So it was a de facto guarantee to now you have Greg Sankey saying, you know, forget it, forget automatic qualifiers. We don't need to do that. So I think that they really, any vision like you were talking about of the Pac-12 staying together and still still being a power conference out west anchored by Washington and Oregon, still including Washington State and Oregon State, that I think would have been way more realistic if the, the, the current commissioner had done what probably was the, the savvy move, certainly looks like the savvy move now, and agree to a playoff that essentially guaranteed access for the Pac-12 no matter what happened. Big picture what you're saying, I get and that probably that is better for the Pac-12. It gives them a seat at the table, most likely, and a path toward the money. I, if you pause for just a second, though, I would say for the past 10 years specifically, but, I mean, really for the, for the past 15, there's been a scramble and a fear of getting left behind. And that's what's motivated most of the decision-making within the Pac-12, but within college football, which is there's more and more money being made available because of these television contracts, and you need to do things to maximize the amount of money that you're going to make. Otherwise, you're going to be left behind, right? And you're not going to be able to get the exposure that will help you recruit, and you're not going to be able to get the TV revenues that are going to help you build the new weight room, new facilities, all of these different things that hopefully enhance the experience of your players and make them more likely to come there, but, but build your program. Is, is that, do you think that's a, a, fairly, a fairly reasonable summation of the last 15 years of big picture economics? Yeah, definitely. And it, it's, it's kind of, it's funny, you know, all this talk about, oh my gosh, the, you know, Washington and Oregon, especially like they can't, whatever they do, you know, they, they got to up their revenue. They can't get left behind. They're going to get, you know, they're going to get killed in recruiting if they don't make a move. They're not going to be able to go to the – and it's like, well, these have all been issues for the Pac-12 already. They've already been losing a ton of yes. top recruits on the West Coast. They already haven't made a playoff since 2016. Um, it's just that now the actual formal death is – feels somewhat imminent. Um, so it's it's elevated those conversations. But, yeah, like that's absolutely already been a major concern. So – over those past 10 to 15 years, what I've experienced as a fan is that the experience largely has gotten worse. And that's even with there being a significant uptick in, in Washington's on-field success. Both a Peach Bowl berth in the National Football Playoff and then going to the Rose Bowl the year where they lost to Ohio State. I don't think that this chase for the cash has benefited the college football fan, certainly, and I'm not sure how much better off Washington is for having gotten what they could out of that. Like, I think there's a cost that comes with the chase for this sort of thing. And if you're, if you're telling me on the one hand you get a, a Big Ten spot and you get your slice of this $1 billion media rights deal and you get included in the other super conference, we're going to have the AFC versus the NFC essentially. And Fox is going to have the AFC with the Big Ten and and ESPN's going to have the the NFC with the SEC and if Washington isn't part of that are they 
is are they really going to be worse off overall? Because maybe, may, maybe that doesn't, and they become a glorified form of NAIA football or Linfield or whatever the hell else happens. But the other thing is, maybe that actually preserves the overall experience, and you don't end up becoming sort of a middle-of-the-road team in a conference that makes no geographic sense for you. And sure, you, you, get, you get more money, but now you're just kind of like little fish or medium-sized fish in this enormous pond, and I'm not convinced that that's going to be a better experience for anybody. So you're saying you would be okay with them playing for a, a different championship? Right now, yes, because I'm bitter and mad and mean. Like, no, I don't know how it would feel if Washington had a really good team and they're on the outside looking in. I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to feel if they end up being Boise State in one of those years they couldn't get a, a bigger. I don't know how that would feel, but I guess my my point is is that the other alternative that everybody says is like, oh, this is just the way it's going. That alternative sucks. And it sucks for the actual people who are fans, and it's designed by people who don't like college football. It's designed by all of these TV executives who are like, let's get the biggest number we can. And they don't give a crap about what the experience or what that does to other games that have to wait to when it finds out. And I'm mad, Christian. I'm mad at these people. I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. You should be. I I just don't think there's an option that doesn't suck at this point. Yeah, yeah that's probably true. And you know why? Because UCLA and USC are a bunch of traitors. Bunch of Judases. <laughs> no, wait a second. You weren't mad at them. You now I you... am. I told you I'm mad. <laughs> you've man, you've had some time to ruminate on this. Yes. I'm pissed off. All these people cashing checks. UCLA. Like, imagine this. I'm actually hoping that the governor of California, whom I generally find to be a moron. I hope he hauls UCLA out to the woodshed and just wails on him for a couple hours, makes him cough up every little penny that they thought they were going to get from this. That's what this has done to me. It's turned me into a bitter, vengeful man rooting for bureaucrats. So going back to that, I I keep I'm hung up on this quote from John Wilner's story about this, where a spokesperson for the UC Regents or for the UC system said the UC Regents have no authority to stop. UCLA from making this move. So what authority would they have to force them to to cough up some portion of their revenue? This is where we get to the difference between policy and politics. Policy, the regions don't have the ability to kibosh. But you think they'd lean on them to a point where... Yes. And from reading between the lines, there is there the UC president, the guy who's in charge of the regents, uh, he's the chancellor at Irvine, the anteaters. Um, he knew about this and he didn't tell all of the other regions. Yeah. Cause like a couple of them were told, but asked exactly. to keep it quiet. Right. And he's in trouble. Like he's the guy, like I, I would, I would keep a close eye on him. Cause I don't think he's going to be the president nor in a position of power for much longer in the UC <laughs> system. Like I think, I think his head's going to roll. Um, and they can, the regents can do any number of things to force, like, while they don't have the ability to say, UCLA, you have to work out an arrangement that will allow you to go, they can do something on the back end to say, you've done something to, to financially hurt the school that you're allied with, that you're in the same system with, and you have to do something to help them. There has to be an offset here. And it's not a clear policy path, but I think that's where we get into the bare-knuckle politics. It would be hilarious if Cal 
came out ahead or like join like <laughs> took a they were like yeah we'll we'll go to the mountain west and and we'll <laughs> because we're raking like 20 million a year from UCLA's TV we just deal do it. Like we're the welfare kings, woohoo! <laughs> this money spends real good down there from Westwood. <laughs> That'd be great. It'd be fantastic. Uh, do you buy? Do you buy that UCLA was about to like cut all of its non-revenue sports if they didn't no, get this money? No, no, I don't believe any. I don't believe any of those things. I believe they were about to say they were going to and complain about it. UCLA has got a pretty robust athletic department. It's got a weird athletic department too. It First is, yeah, all, very strange. First of all, like they get, and I don't know if people realize this, their Under Armour deal was like the biggest of any athletic apparel. Like they had the biggest shoe contract. Their shoe contract's bigger than Alabama's. Mm-hmm. And that's then there's been a problem because Under Armour was like, yeah, we're actually not going to pay you all of this because it's too much money. But they have, they have a huge thing and they're massively underwater. I think the last I saw, they're like a $100 million deficit. Like their facilities aren't good. Their their pro their football program is has been generally meh, right? Compared to what you usually expect or what the pedigree is, it's it's the greatest underachieving football program in the Pac-12, isn't it? Oh, definitely, I'd say so. UCLA is with Jordan Brand now because of because Correct. because Under Armour breached the contract. Correct, because Under Armour was like, we promised you too much money, we're not going to give you that, yeah. and then they bolted. <laughs> but when you look at UCLA's, I think UCLA, when you consider everything, I think it's up over $200 million is what their apparel endorsements, and I don't think anybody else is over 200 I I just, do, do you buy that USC and UCLA can concurrently win at a high level? Like, I, I think there's definitely enough recruits and, you know, high-level recruits in Southern California to go around for both of those programs, but not if Oregon is succeeding recruiting down there, which they have been. And if Washington gets it going and starts recruiting down there at the level they did on the back half of Chris Peterson's tenure and Alabama and Clemson and Michigan and and whoever else are coming west and, and taking recruits, Ohio State, um, I just... Over the past 30 years, I would say that the answer is no, that those programs won't be able to compete. The one exception to that is I do think that Pete Carroll showed what you can do at USC. Mm -hmm. And it's always dangerous to hold up kind of the outlier and say, here it is. Because Pete, when Pete was hired there, I mean, they'd stunk. You'd had the second run of John Robinson that came after Larry Smith. Then after that, you had Paul Hackett was there, and there's one more guy that I'm forgetting in there. Maybe that's where it went, Larry Smith, John Robinson, Hackett, and then Pete. Like, they were, they were a middle of the, of the conference. They were not good. And then they rocketed up, what, seven straight conference titles, and it became a very popular place to go. It does have that reputation and that cachet, and being in L.A. helps it, but that's really the only time in the past 30 years that's happened. So... Overall, I would say unlikely. Lincoln Riley's a pretty high-profile coach. I think he's pretty smart. He's, and I, I think the system he wants to run is going to fit there. I, I don't have much expectation for UCLA. I think, I think UCLA is going to be very Illinois-ish in the Big Ten. I think they're going to be very Illinois-ish. It's just it's, um, it's hard for me to square this like newfound, you know, aggressive cutthroat commitment to to winning and competing and revenue and all this with you know the biggest criticism of Chip Kelly so far which is 
is he invested in recruiting Does at a really care? high level? <laughs> Does he care? He's like, don't wake me up. I'm getting up at 10. I'll be in there. What do you want from me? So Isn't that I, weird? I, that's of all of this. That's one of the bigger surprises is that he's not been better because, man, I thought I thought he was going to get it rolling. He's a pretty smart dude. He just he just doesn't care. I won't go that far. I'll, I'll let you go that far. But I won't I won't go that far. <laughs> that's a smart man. That's I, a judicious reporter right there. I think I the, the recruiting effort is is odd to me. I'll I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, again, I, I just think you're going to have to see a lot more a lot more aggression from from UCLA on the recruiting trail to to keep up in the Big Ten. Um, it's like it's you. Know, Chris Peterson took such pride in Washington giving out fewer scholarship offers every cycle yeah. than, than any other school, almost any other school. And like Stanford was always way down there for very obvious reasons. Um, but you their academically prowess. Exactly. That is the number one reason. <laughs> the prowess of their academically. <laughs> their academically prowess. But UCLA, UCLA was always down there in the same range. And I'm like, mm-hmm. is that because Chip Kelly is judicious or? <laughs> he just don't care. <laughs> Um, are you less excited for this season because of any of this? So we're just dealing with this. Yeah, I am. Um, and that's a bummer because I was divvying up which games I'm going to come out for and kind of looking at it. And I'm going to, it's not a good home schedule to begin with. It's not great. It's not great. Um, I'm not going to come out for either of the first two and I might've had this not happen, but I'm not going to come out for Kent state and the other, uh, I I am going to come out for Michigan state, which is, is probably the signature home game. And then I, I think I'll come out for either with Stanford's right after that. I think San, Stanford is end of September, and then it's Arizona. And I think I'm coming out for that one. That's like mid-October. And then it's Colorado. So it's not a great schedule. I I want to see what DeBoer has. I, I want to see what he puts in place with an offense, though. Like, I, I would say that I, as I started thinking about like, no, I am excited to see what he puts in place simply because I don't think last year gave a very good idea of the offensive talent Washington has because their scheme was so atrocious. Like it was just so horrible. So I'm, I am excited about that part. I'm excited to see what he puts in place. I think a lot of recruits are, are in that same mode. You know, let's, what's this, what's the offense going to look like? What's the defense going to look like? I was, I was putting together my list. I ranked their 22 most important players the other day. And I kept, I, Guy after guy after guy, especially defensively, I'm like, man, if this guy pans out, if this guy develops into you know what they thought he was going to be, if this guy who was a huge recruit, you know, takes the next step, like there's just there's so many defensive players, especially who could totally like change the picture of what their season could be if just a couple of them turn into what they they kind of thought they would as high schoolers. Offensively, like I know Roma Dunze and Jalen McMillan haven't put it together for a full season concurrently. They were both, both of them were banged up to start last year. And obviously, like you said, schematically, they were, they were limited and um, it just wasn't a good situation for anybody on that offense to, to kind of show what they were about. I think those guys are sure things in terms of if they're healthy and if your starting quarterback is healthy, like they're going to get their targets. There's just not a, in Kalen DeBoer's offense, I mean, you can look at Fresno State's numbers the last couple of years. I think Jalen Cropper was their number one receiver. He had 119 targets last year in 13 games, um, and I think I think their number two receiver had 89 targets. So you're talking about the top two guys combining for over 200, 
and and you know it's not difficult to project that out to this roster especially with the way i mean walking in the door these guys talked about jalen mcmillan romo dunze and jalen polk in particular is like hey that look look at what we're inheriting you know it's like they it's it's not like they made a bunch of promises about who's going to put up this many yards or we're going to score this many points or whatever but they were very clear that they felt like they had high level talent in the receiver room so knowing you know having actual data that you can watch and analyze about this offensive structure knowing how many balls the number one two and three receivers have seen the last couple years and knowing how they feel about their top three receivers in particular on this team I think we just know those guys are going to get a a ton of opportunities and you're right I mean until you actually see it in action you know is Jalen McMillan a a thousand yard guy is Romo Dunze an an 80 catch guy you know let's let's see it but I don't think there's any question that they know who their best players are and they're going to lean on those guys big time. Who's going to play quarterback? I still think it's going to be Michael Penix Jr. Um, They seem to really like Dylan Morris. I think, and I think he had a good spring. Um, I I think he's, I think he's pretty tough mentally. And like I was saying this the other day, not, not the kind of guy who's, who's going to let a year like last year, you know, ruin him. I think he's very much okay. Back to work, clean slate. You know, let's do what I got to do to to make myself compete. I I don't know exactly what he meant because it Michael Penix Jr. threw two interceptions in the mm-hmm. spring game. But yep. Kalen DeBoer had said that like Penix and Morris combined for like two picks all spring, which seems kind of hard to believe. Um, but obviously, they were very impressed with the way those guys took care of the ball and that was Dylan Morris's biggest issue last last year was just kind of those some of them under pressure but some of them unforced um interceptions so I don't know I I don't know how much of a factor Sam Heward is going to be come camp it's possible he's made some big strides over the you know built on that what was I thought was a pretty impressive showing in the spring game and maybe he's made some big strides over the summer but it feels it definitely felt at least coming out of spring like if anyone was if it wasn't going to be Michael Penix Jr., it was probably going to be Dylan Morris. We've already pretty clearly established that I'm the the idiot mouth breather fan, right? That that that's kind of my spot. That's that's my sweet spot here. Because there's a bit of me that's like, man, if Sam Heward isn't part of this conversation, <laughs> it's been a huge disappointment. <laughs> like, and it's like that's that's not that's not realistic, right? This is. He, he he didn't that last year was his first year on campus. The idea that someone who in their second year isn't starting at a program where you've had a guy transfer in who's got some familiarity with it. And not only that, but the the other guy is has two years of starting history. Like that shouldn't be some sort of like black mark or sign. Yet there's a little bit of me that feels that way. <laughs> and that that might have more to do with his last name it might not entirely be fair like i said i might be the idiot mouth breather fan here but there's a part of me that's like man sam needs to be in this conversation hey i get it i mean look you sign a five-star recruit at quarterback who's local who's a legacy and yeah we talk about dylan morris's mental makeup i think sam heward has all that too and i like i I don't think he's a guy, for example, who's going to like run and transfer the, the at the first hint that yeah. he might have to wait another year. Um, I, I you just you look at okay, he graduated high school early, yes, and and he enrolled kind of that was it the, the spring yeah. spring quarter or was he even there winter? He enrolled he he broke the 
career passing record in the state of Washington on a Saturday. That's right. Moved into his dorm at Washington the next day and then had his first spring practice on that Monday. So he went from, like Sheldon Cross at Kennedy Catholic always said he had like a a PhD in the air raid because he ran a true air raid. He'd been a college offensive coordinator and, you know, knew what he was doing. And so had this really sharp, you know, bright, talented quarterback with a bunch of really talented receivers. And he had a great time operating the air raid for four years. You go from that to the antithesis of the air raid. The outhouse? Yeah. The, that's what I that's what I generally refer to. That's what I generally believe the the uh what's his name? The John Donovan offense was. You spend eight months, seven, eight months learning that, and then a new staff comes in and they're running something completely different. And now you so he's he's operating his third offense in three years and probably never felt totally comfortable in the last one he he had to learn last season. I don't think anybody did. I think even their I don't know, their six year seniors felt comfortable in that offense. So it's it's a steep learning curve and it's a lot to learn and you know, the, like Ryan Grubb is a he, he coached quarterbacks at Fresno State. He didn't play quarterback, but he, he's been a quarterback's coach and been an off been been a play caller before and knows exactly what he wants at that position and knows exactly what his expectations are. And it, so it doesn't surprise me that they went out and got a fifth year guy and that the fourth year guy who has what 15 games of starting experience in college, it doesn't surprise me that those two guys would be ahead at this point. Yeah, it does make sense. And I, the one thing that I don't know is all through last year, I was kind of looking and thinking, does Sam want a red shirt? Like, is that what his family's hoping for here? Because if that's the case, it's a totally different question. Then I was feeling like if he wants to play, I'd just rather see him play. But rushing rushing a player and a quarterback, like in the NFL, I know that that can be something that's not beneficial. Like letting someone learn out in front of everybody can can be become a roadblock or become something that that derails what would otherwise be an incredibly productive player because he's just not ready for that. Yeah, I, I think that was... I would not be surprised if the previous coaching staff had that front of mind that, you know, and obviously they felt pressure to let the fans get a look at him because yeah, God, they picked the worst times to play him. Should they, you know, (laughs) should they have, should they have started him in the apple cup? I realize at this point, like it doesn't really matter. The season was over. It was an interim coaching staff. It was just get this over with, but did that, I mean, did that help him? Did they gain anything by doing that? I don't think so. But that's just I don't know how the kid felt about it though. Right? Like I I would I would think that in the overall scheme of things, that's going to be neither a huge make or break moment, right? Like it's it's the end of a year. Everybody's kind of doing the best they can. It's not like anybody was disappointed in in him. It's not like anybody was like, Oh, I wish but did it help? No, I don't think so. Like, I, 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 I don't think it did. And I think it's come to embody to me what was just the absolute ridiculousness of last season on about three different levels. The first level being an offensive coordinator who was inexplicably hired, running an inexplicably horrible system that inexplicably refused to, to feature the best players on the roster. And then it was a head coach who was completely over his skis and unprepared for what it was like to run a major college program. And Sam 
and a number of other players were the ones that were caught and kind of crunched by that. I don't know if there's anything there was. You know how we just said you, you said there's no good situation in in for Washington moving forward in conference realignment. There was no good situation at the end of last year. There like, was there's not. nothing. There, there was nothing that was going to help. If you don't play him, then you've got mouth breathing idiot fans like me. You're like, well, come on, let's see what he's got. It can't be any worse. If <laughs> if you do play him, then you're like, oh my god, you're subjecting him to a beating behind this team. Like for who for what so i i i need to take a deep breath along with probably about a couple thousand other husky fans and just let let sam heward develop on his own terms and not try to read into what this means given all the turbulence that's been there watch him come out in august and just shred it and he's just he's just clearly the guy i love it that's the thing is you can't ever with a with a guy as talented as him you can't ever rule that out like when yeah. when he finally does take that next step and make that jump, like it's you know it could be instantaneous and it could be really really stark. So you know we'll hey August fourth we'll see. Okay, I'm just after my little like hey we need to let him develop on his own time. <laughs> <laughs> if you were going to set a scenario of how you develop him right now, of what you do right now, it's exactly what Kalen DeBoer is doing, which is eliminating all pressure on him, right? Yeah. It's putting it's you've got a transfer in Phoenix, you've got Dylan Morris who has starting experience, and you put those two guys toward the front of the conversation. And you don't do anything to discredit what Sam's doing, which is what DeBoer's done, right? Like it's not like he said, Well, he's he's at, he's getting he's getting up like he's talking about him in extremely but everything DeBoer has done has been to train the attention on Phoenix and Morris. Am I correct? I would say that's true, yeah. Right. And so if Heward comes out and rips it up, and, and you go to him, hey, that's great. And if it doesn't turn out that way, you don't have anybody like me wondering, like, why isn't Heward involved in this conversation? It's certainly been, well, he's kind of been pointing to that for a year. So if you were going to have someone take it a house of fire and, and just rip it up in August and be out there when the season starts, this is the way you would do it if you're a smart coach. How's that for a little bit of buildup? I, th- I think that's a, that's a very astute observation. That's something I hadn't thought about. I mean, I like... Because they they do talk a lot about you know you'd always want you want to establish your starter if it's obvious you've got a guy you want him to go through the off season with everyone looking to him knowing he's the guy and then he's he's got you know he's kind of got a mandate right to to rally everybody and act as the leader and and really like show leadership they talk about that about like that's one of the downsides of carrying a competition into camp is you kind of go through the off season and maybe those guys don't feel as uh, empowered to like take ownership of the offense type of thing. Um, so maybe it, you know, I, one, I think the fact that, that they were content to let it go through the summer that way tells you that it's, it's not a runaway for, for Michael Penix jr. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what their, what their true kind of evaluation is of Sam Heward right now. I, when I talked to Kalen DeBoer for our state of the program story, he, he was very confident in what they have at quarterback. I mean, he's, you know, and I suppose what what else is he going to say? But the staff has been pretty honest in their evaluations either way of like position groups as a whole, especially with what Ryan Grubb has said about running back. Um, so they they seem to to th- at least think coming out of spring, okay, not sure, you know, not ready to say it's this guy or this guy or this guy. But from what they saw from those three, they they seem to think that they'll have somebody who can move the offense the way that uh, the way that they want. Setting aside the quarterbacks uh-huh. because I just because I 
I just did this myself. If, if you if you take quarterback out of the equation, who who would you say is the most important player on this team going into twenty twenty two? most important player. The player where like if you if you heard he was out for the season for whatever reason, it would most be like, oh man, they lost that guy. ZTF, right? That's that's who I put number one. It's got to be ZTF. Yeah, I, because. It, they haven't had like of all of the different things and they've had some awesome defensive players they haven't had an edge rusher like that Mm -hmm. and it's it's pretty clear when he's been in there the impact that he can have um yeah i would say i would say ztf is the guy roma dunze is up there pretty high i think i think i think rome's an incredibly talented player and and i i i would say of all of the players on the team i would predict him to have a breakthrough this year simply because of the change in scheme and and man he's he's just so electric when he gets the ball doesn't it it seems he's just different when he gets the ball i agree when 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 he gets and the ability to create but if you're the most important guy it's ztf yeah i i feel like you can make an argument for odunze and mcmillan as a duo Mm -hmm. being the most like if you lost both those guys now you're going oh geez but if you if you just lost one, you know, if you lost Romo Dunze, you'd think, well, they've still got Jalen McMillan and Jalen Polk and Giles Jackson had a good spring. Taj Davis has shown, you know, you still got some options and you still have like one of your elite guys. Um, if if they were to lose both of those guys, which they they didn't have them for the the opener last year, and you saw how stagnant their their offense was even against Montana, um, that would that'd be a big time loss. I had Tuli Tuli Nasanoa second. Yeah, um, that's probably right. Especially, especially with the the dude that went down to Oregon. Um, I think I think that puts a puts a pretty big heap of pressure on the big man in the middle. And it's just such an important position. It's that this is the year. I mean, they had they recruited really well at D line in twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen, mm-hmm. and then they moved they've moved Alumuale over there too. That's another factor. So they, I think, I had five guys on that list. Where it's like, man, if, if one or two of these guys ends up being like a dude, they could be really good up front. But aside from Thule, they really don't have anybody who has established himself even close to that level in, in college yet. I think they've got a lot of potential, a lot of talent, but that's one area where you need you need to see it. And Thule is the one guy that you know you you know you can count on. You kind of know what you're getting from him. Um, I had Carson, what what about Carson Bruner? So that's there's an, awful, there's an awful lot relying on him, isn't there? You know, uh, so you would think so, but they ended the spring in the spring game. Their starting linebackers were Cam Bright and Alfonso Tupatala, who the coaches love. I mean, the staff loves Alfonso Tupatala. He had a great spring. Um, and then they they went out and got Chris Mall, another sixth year linebacker transfer from UAB who's played a ton of mm-hmm. football. It's got like yeah. over 200 some career tackles. You got to think that guy's going to be a factor. Edifu on Yulafosio, you assume is going to come back at some point. So I, I had Bruner 12th. I would, if I knew for sure, like that guy's definitely starting, you know, put a bullet on it. It's done. I would have had him a little higher. Um, but I, it's weird. I, you, we've been so conditioned to think of linebackers this position for them that's lacking depth and experience, yeah, and it's been a it problem. Is. It has been good. They haven't. They haven't. They haven't had. They haven't had speed there. Yet all of a sudden, there's three or four guys I could see emerging as the top two out of camp. Like Cam Bright didn't leave a starting captain role on a team that played in a New Year's Six game last year to come sit on the bench at Washington. Yeah. So 
you got to think he'll be in there. But then it, I liked it, the way Bruner played last year. Maybe he's just a little bit light in the ass for for what they want, and and they wonder about how he holds up. But I really I liked the way he played last year. Oh, I did too. I mean, I think I don't think there's any question. Like he's gonna be a a big piece of their future moving forward defensively. And, and maybe I'm nuts for even you know maybe the the spring was the spring, and they're gonna get into camp, and it's like oh well yeah obviously Carson Bruner is one of our guys. What are you guys? What are you know what are you thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know whether he is whether he's starting or not. He'll be on the depth chart. He'll play a lot. He's he's going to have every opportunity to earn a starting job if if he doesn't start the season with one. I just know that you know Cam Bright is a known commodity, and they yeah. went out and got him for a reason, and they really liked Alfonso Tupatala through the spring. So I just don't think that that position is necessarily as as clear as it as it might appear. But you're right. Like there was a ton to like about Carson Bruner last year. I think he's got a really bright future, and you know that linebacker. You know, the the best case scenario is linebacker went from this like emergency depth situation to oh now it's it's like actually a competition and it's not just about you know filling out the second line on the death chart. Where'd you have Jackson Kirkland on your list? I had him fifth. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly would hear arguments for for him being higher. The reason I I didn't is because I think Troy Fautanu is ready for a breakout. Um, and he he spent the spring at left tackle with the number one O line. I would guess he'll probably move over to guard to start for them this year with Kirkland coming back. Um, and just the fact that they did go through a whole spring without Jackson Kirkland, and so maybe we're able to build like some chemistry and some continuity there to where they you know I certainly they're a much better offensive line with him. I mean, uh, one hundred times out of one hundred, you want him back. Obviously, um, I just I think that they were that position is probably like better prepared to absorb a loss like that than say the D line would be without Thule or receiver would be without McMillan or Odunze. So, or, or edge rusher would be without ZTF. So that was, that was why I had him and, you know, not like fifth is low, but um, I could, I could see moving him higher too. Now I've, I, I like Kirkland a lot. One of the reasons I've always really liked him though, a little extra. So his dad, Dean Kirkland, Mm-hmm once whooped on Dave Wyman in a fight. <laughs> Did he really? Yeah. Cuz Dean Dean was a wrestler. <laughs> was it was it during a game? I think it was during a game and and I think I think he kind of just got underneath him and Wyman like for all of the different things Wyman did not tend to lose fights. Like he did he, he did not and and in this case and when he did it was generally um had to do with something like leverage and wrestlers are fighting a wrestler is an entirely different experience than fighting a normal football player. Like when you fight yeah. someone who has wrestled before, like, and it's not even like you get your butt kicked. You just get put on your back and can't do anything. Um, so I've, I've always taken that little bit of like Jackson Kirkland comes from good stock. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. I, I wanted to, it, did you hear about like the, the weight room they built at his house during like yes. the, the height of the pandemic shutdown? Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to see that, what that was like. I bet him and dad got after it, man. <laughs> Dude, they can't they can't wrestle though, right? Like they probably haven't wrestled since he was like 16 or 17. That'd be a, yeah, my, I think he's going to media day. I'll have to ask him. Yeah, like if they've actually because at some point, I mean, do you have a, do you have a younger or older brother? I don't know. So, I have a younger brother. And there's a point in every sibling relationship, and I'm going to extend this because I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it would happen if you were a father and son who both were offensive linemen. 
where it gets to be like, okay, you actually can't have feats of strength against each other anymore because there's no there's no governor. Like somebody will feel the need to win. Yeah. Um, and in the case of my younger brother, it was like he'd never cheat. Like I I would always cheat. Like if it came down to like we're gonna a, a win or a loss. So that basically about the time he reached puberty was when any sort of physical altercations had to stop because the rules of engagement change. And I would, I I really can't imagine what it would be like in a house with like where the father is an, an offensive lineman. Um, Or maybe it's like one of those Bomani Jones segments from the right time when you would have moments where people tried to confront their dad and how it turned out for them. And they were always hilarious, like just always hilarious. Like somebody decides and just looks at him wrong. And the dad decides that it's time for grown man strength to be deployed. <laughs> the next thing you know, that person is on the ground out of breath and unsure how they got there. It'd be interesting to see how that would go between the Kirklands. <laughs> like I said, he comes from good stock. Um, or is there a player you're most excited for this year? Maybe a guy who will, will, will take Odunze and McMillan and, ZTF out of the conversation. Maybe maybe a guy who hasn't. Well, I I get perpetually excited about Savelle Smalls. Mm-hmm. Yes, he's like, he's one. I got question. You know, I I did my ranking and I got immediately got questions. Well, where's man? Is you know really no Savelle Smalls? I just that's that has to do with his high school reputation and not with anything I've seen on the field from him. Like I mean, that's like honestly just how it goes. The other guy I loved Richard Newton. Yeah absolutely loved Richard Newton. Like the year when they went to the Rose Bowl, he was a freshman, right? And is that correct? He was, was red. He was, he was red shirt. Yeah. So it was the next year and you saw him and I was like, he's the best running back on the roster. And then something happened later in that year. And I'm, he must've gotten in, um, must've gotten in, in Peterson's dog house or, uh, in Jimmy Lake's dog house. And he didn't, he didn't play much. And maybe he was more, I've always liked the way he runs. He clearly gets banged up. Like that clearly happens. But I, I, that was my impression of him when I saw him was like that dude, that dude was the best running back on, on the, on the roster. I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen for him, but I still hold out hope because I thought he was really talented his first year. Richard Newton and Cam Davis are the two, like, it'll be fascinating to see where they fit in because like, I mean, from the second this coaching staff got here, they started just recruiting running backs from the portal. Just immediately, like, we need more running backs because those guys couldn't go through spring. I did ask DeBoer in May, like, if he had a thought about those guys. And he said, hey, it's like I've had a lot of players. It's like a lot of guys on this team think those guys are really, really good. And he's like, I have no reason to think that they're embellishing. So, you know, they definitely have the respect of their, their teammates. And I think, you know, it's definitely been put in – the coaching staff's ear that like, Hey, you know, don't write these guys off just cause they were banged up, you know, or just cause of last year or whatever, like these guys have some juice, they can go like, let's see what they can do. So I, I'm inclined to think they'll get that opportunity. Um, I still kind of think Aaron Dumas is probably the, the number one guy to start the year, just based on availability. The fact that, you know, this staff Lee Marks recruited him at Fresno state. Um, he, he rushed for our, 140 yards, I think, against Fresno State at New Mexico last year. So I think they've got some familiarity with him. He was healthy all spring. Uh, I think they trust him to catch the ball, all those sort of things. But, like, yeah, that's another. 
let's let August play out, man. I think anybody could emerge in that running back room. I think they're just waiting for somebody to show that, okay, this guy can do everything we need him to do, especially in the passing game. So we'll, we'll see how they, how they come through that way. Um, I'm excited, man. Like you asked that at the beginning, like, was I excited? And I, I've, I've spent a lot of energy being mad about the, the conference realignment like I, I i have and it's affected the way i feel but as we're talking about it here like i i'm really excited to see what this offense does because there's some offensive talent on this team and and it's not been used or like taken advantage of in any shape or form certainly the past two years and i'm excited to see what happens i know you you said you, you ran it down earlier are you going to the michigan state game i am yeah i'm gonna come out uh one of the, the guy that's come comes in we we have four of us who have season tickets and we're located in Alaska, Arizona, one guy in Seattle and then and then me out in New York. And I we are we're going to do the Michigan State game and then probably the the Arizona game. But yeah, I'm I'm excited I'm excited for that game. You guys all live in Big 10 country then is what you're saying. <laughs> Alaska Fairbanks. Go get oh. go get them. Yeah, I, the the guy in Arizona is probably the one that influences my opinion. He's like, he hates the way schedules are announced now. Like, he he throws an annual fit. Like, you never know when the game is. I can't even decide when I'm going to go up to the game. It's absolutely impossible now. You just don't even know. Like, it used to be like two or three weeks out. Now it'll be six days, and you just don't know. I don't know if I need a flight back on Saturday night or if I have to wait till Sunday morning. Like, the level of crying. So that's probably influenced me. Yeah, that's rare. And at, at least, you know, his his fellow... Arizona and like Arizona State fans who he who he lives with down there, they know they're going to have night games most of the time and have probably are probably fine with it at this point. Yeah, they're. I don't know if they're, where they're sitting. I guess they would look if the if the Pac ten Pac twelve dissolves, they're probably Big Twelve candidates. They seem like very. They seem like they'd be great great fits in the in the Big Twelve geographically. I think they'd be able to be competitive. Um, Arizona's kind of on the come up, you know. Arizona State needs like a total reset, but it's I, a weird conference, though, right? Yeah, like, it is. It like, is. So the Big Eight, which was its predecessor, was Oklahoma and Nebraska. Those were the two heavyweights, and then you had this weird. And then there was the Big Eight and the SWAC, which was basically the cheating conference. Like you had the the cheaters in the SWAC, and then the Big Eight. Now Oklahoma is, is in the SEC. Nebraska is in the Big Ten, and who's who's the best Big Twelve program? Is it Oklahoma State? Oklahoma State. I mean, in terms of... God, dude with the mullet. Dude with the mullet. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely Arizona, Arizona State Company. They'd fit right in with that dude. Come after me! <laughs> you know what my favorite part of Gundy's rant was? When he goes, she was a mother of, of children. children. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like, as opposed to what? Walruses? <laughs> A mother of children. <laughs> that, <laughs> yes, absolutely. That uh, that rant was so quaint in that he actually had a physical copy of the newspaper with him. <laughs> so funny. came out there. A mother of <laughs> children. <laughs> uh. <laughs> That's all we've got for you this week, folks. Have a good one.